You are listening to Rav Cook on the Haggadah with Yiska Smith, a podcast series from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Welcome to Jewish Soul Food, providing spiritual food and nourishment to the soul, where we may encounter the divine presence within and perhaps hear the soul's unique, still small voice, Hakol de Mamadaka, gently leading and guiding each of us on the sweet path of authentic living. Currently, we are exploring some of Rav Cook's illuminating insights on the Haggadah Shel Pesach. The focus will be on moving from the space of spiritual enslavement to freedom, from a place of scarcity to one of abundance, and from a limited consciousness to an expanded one. So, last week, we concluded with yachatz, and we didn't have time for any questions or insights, reflections at the end. So, I'd like to give a short review, and then open it up to the room, if any of you would like to share a tidbit of how you understand this, or actually maybe how you don't understand this, if you have a question, perhaps. So we talked about that when we divide the middle matzah in two, the final, the, we reserve one piece for the afikomen, and one piece is used to fulfill the mitzvah of eating matzah. And we learn that the final afikomen, which according to most but not all, symbolizes the Korban Pesach. It is the dessert, for sure, by all means, is to be eaten al hasova on a full stomach. The matzah, on the other hand, is to be eaten l'te'avon, hungrily, with appetite. So the Rav teaches that these two different eatings, eating hungrily, and eating on a full stomach spiritually symbolize two different stations along our own spiritual journey. Eating with appetite, eating hungrily, eating that first piece of matzah, this is the, this is the symbol. This symbolizes someone who is considered a spiritual novice. And a spiritual novice for those of us who were not brought up in an observant home, or even if we were, but we are re-looking and re-inquiring everything, we tend to eat ravenously. We want it all. It's all so exciting. So we grab it and we eat it all because we're so hungry. However, the adept or the initiate the one who's a bit further along one's own journey, which, I must add, very important, is not compared to anyone else's journey. We each are on our own journey. But when we feel we're further ahead, we don't eat 
so to speak, to use the word symbolically as ravenously. We feel, we feel to a degree somewhat satisfied already. We just rather, we want to, we seek to enlarge, to broaden the journey, to add depth to it. Now, regarding the two halves of the matzah, the Rav taught, one can observe the interaction between these two types of eating. The mundane eating, the eating because my body is so hungry, and to a degree even my spirit, that relates to the afikoman as its end goal. I want to get to that end. I want more and more and more so I can get to the end where I will experience whatever it is I believe I will experience. However, the more spiritual, the deeper way of, of looking at the afikoman, one realizes I could only get there. I can only arrive to that place in my journey because of all the prior stages, all those ups and downs that led up to it are the reason I can even appreciate it. So the symbolic act of actually breaking the matzah, the matzah in two, is a very visual way of declaring that in the history of an individual, Not only are the ends important, but the means as well. And this is something that in today's modern world, where people, some people are trying and exerting and embracing and just maybe considering more of what we call mindful living, to really be present in the very here and now and not to be distracted by where this is all taking me, this, in fact, the means are very, very important. And the Rav wanted to stress this. This can bring us into, in any given moment, a much deeper place, a much more significant place, which then, wherever we are headed towards, that in of itself just takes on so much more meaning. So then he concluded the teaching by saying, we actually see a Mishnah in Pesachim that helps focus us, that helps focus us to look at the means as important as the end or the ends. And that is that we begin the Seder, Matchil Beganut Umesayem Beshavach. We begin the Seder with that which is not to our credit, or is actually to our shame. Some rabbis, we learned the difference between Rav and Shmuel. They discussed it in the Gemara. Some want to refer to that our fathers originally were idol worshippers. Others want to refer, with, again, going back to this original debate with Rav and Shmuel, that rather than mention that our forefathers were idol worshippers, we mention that we ourselves were slaves. And we then learned from the Maharal of Prague that from his time at least, which is in the 16th 16th century, through now, we mention both. So we mention both times in more towards the beginning of the Seder. In fact, these two moments of shame. However, we conclude the Seder with moments of praise. 
as free people, eating the afikomen. So then what the Rav does in conclusion is he takes to highlight how important it is to him to look at the means to an end as very much a part of the journey, as a deeper way, as a more significant way of looking and experiencing one's journey. He actually takes these two moments in our history, which were means to an end, and shows us how, in fact, they profoundly, profoundly influence the end. Meaning, and this is why we even bring this up to begin with. Maybe this is what the what Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi had in mind when he wrote the Mishnah down. Not that we should just mention it, but we should focus. We should really hold for a moment what it means. So what does it mean when we say that in fact we were slaves? It means that when we became free, because we had the experience of enslavement, we knew what it was like to submit, to yield, to defer our will. So as free people who had that experience, we can actually use that in our relationship, not only with God, but we can choose when it's appropriate in our own human relations. There are times we need to take a step back and say to the other, I defer. But say it as a free person. And that experience of slavery is what enables us to, in fact, do that. Alachat kama so much the more so when we're talking about being in relationship with God. When God's will is whatever it may be, and at that given moment, I may have a contrary will. I may want something other than what God expects of me at the moment. Well, because I have in my history that avdut, that enslavement, that slavery, I can take a step back and say to myself, yes, at this moment, I really don't want to do what God wants of me, but because of other reasons, I will. I will. That's a very important part of a religious, spiritual journey in Judaism. It's not always about what I want, nor is it always about, I always want what God wants of me. It even says in Pirkei Avot, you know, that I forget the exact wording, but something to the effect of making your will God's will and God's will your will. Well, that's a wonderful end, (laughs) but there's a means to that, and it's very real, and it's something to be honored. Now, the Rav teaches that what is the benefit of recounting that our forefathers were in fact idol worshippers? I mean, what could be more shameful to a spiritual people that proclaims, especially Avraham, who was the beginner, the progenitor of this, who came from an idol worshipping family, what could be more contrary to what he lived his life for than idol worship? So the Rav teaches us something. It's brilliant that idol worshippers, in fact, were very imaginative people because they imagined their own gods. So I want to share with you a little piece that the Ravs teaches later on 
when we actually say in the Seder, And this, this is a beautiful extension of what he mentions here. And the reason he mentions it here is he wants to teach us that if we can take something from that experience of idol worship, equaling, equating with the imaginative spirit, then it would result, and hopefully will result, in a service of God that is not overly cerebral and sterile and lackluster. So just as we can take from the enslavement, the avdut, we can also take from the idol worship experience. He says as follows, because of Israel's tendency to, to spirituality and intellectualism, which comes from the role of the Bnei Yisrael, of the people of Israel, as a holy people destined to make the name of God known in the world, there might have been, there might have arisen a situation in which the power of imagination was totally lost. Think about that. As we look in our own communities, as we look in our own lives, do we see imagination? Do we see that creative spirit in our own journey, in our communities, in our synagogue and prayer communities, in our learning halls, in our day schools, in our yeshivot? Imagination, Rav Cook says, is necessary for the perfection of the world. So because we can say at the Seder, even though it's to our dishonor that originally our fathers were idolaters, we can see the means to a greater end from that. In that now, today, we are able to enrich, he says, our divine service with all those talents found in our ancestral roots. There is a place in divine service for the imaginative spirit once it's been refined. So that's how he concludes Yachatz. I find that last I find that last comment of his the need to incorporate, to infuse, to integrate, to really embrace the imaginative spirit. Actually, I find that to be something that's both all too often lacking, and when it's present, we see each other becoming more alive with our Judaism. Yes, we have boundaries. We have a Shulchan Aruch, we have the Jewish law, we have the mitzvot. But like Shlomo Kabach said, I know why God created me as a Jew. I'm supposed to do the six, observe the 613 mitzvot. Of course, that's more symbolic today because without a Beit HaMikdash, most of them we cannot do. But just the phrase, the 613 mitzvot. Fine, as a Jew, I know my purpose. But he said, what is Shlomo's purpose? What is Yiska's purpose? What is each of your purpose? The Rav, if I'm understanding him, well, I'm understanding him my way, 
The only way for me, for you, for anyone to come to that place of, wow, I think I have a sense of why I'm created, why God created me, not me as a Jew, or me as a human being, to share a global community with values, with ethics. But why am I here without the imaginative spirit? I just ask, is that possible? So yes, so that's yachatz. Hmm. Would any of you like to share an insight, a reflection, question? <laughs> okay, I guess, I guess we, that's the sign. We're ready to move to our next step. Magid. Magid, okay. Magid really means the teller or the telling. You may have heard the phrase, the nickname for the successor to the Baal Shem Tov. Rabbi Dov Bear of Meserich is called the Magid of Meserich because he would go around and tell. He would tell all the, he would repeat to different communities the teachings from the Baal Shem Tov. Hence, we have also the name Haggadah Shel Pesach. Well, the word Haggadah is the telling of Pesach. It's from the same Shoresh. So now we're at the next step, Magid. In the very first section of Magid, you'll see in your text I put on the top, because we're going to have a few different readings, a few different teachings within the step of Magid, it's by far the, in terms of, if you were to time it on a watch, it's the longest part of the Seder. You know, it's the part when the kids are getting a little bit, and when are we getting to the matzah? <laughs> we're busy telling and telling, and Jews like to tell. We like to tell stories. We all have a story to tell. And this night of Pesach is the night to tell our story of how we become and are becoming free. However, it's more than just something we like to do. It's important. It's actually important. There's a value to that. We do need to tell our story and hear each other's stories. Where do we derive that from, that need? Well, aside from our imaginative spirit that inclines us so, right in the very beginning of Magid, immediately after the four questions the Arba HaKushiot. In the very first paragraph, we read the following, Mitzvah Aleinu L'Saper B'Tziat Mitzrayim. It's a mitzvah. It's incumbent upon us to tell the story of the exodus of Mitzrayim. And of course, this can be understood literally, the actual historical event, or your own event of coming out of your own Mitzrayim, or maybe a little bit of both. But then the rabbis continue and add this, anyone that anyone that increases one's telling of the exodus of Egypt, this person is praiseworthy. 
So from that, the rabbis are giving us space and encouragement. Tell your story. And the more you tell it, the more praiseworthy it is. So I've decided that for the next couple of weeks, we'll tell the story in a f- through vis-a-vis a few tidbits, rather than just one class on Magid. So I'd like to begin with the tidbit, which is in the very same paragraph as this mitzvah alenu. By the way, when you think about it, how many mitzvot are there actually present in the Seder? The other main mitzvah is to eat matzah. So eating matzah, eating the matzah, and the telling of the Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim. Could you imagine the very first Seder? What, it must have, what they must have been talking about? Like the P.S. Etzner Rebbe says, try to imagine, try to really imagine yourselves Really imagine yourselves at that first Seder. What that must have been, what their story must have been like. What your story actually, what your story would be like. When was the first Seder? 3,400 years ago. I mean, the, the night that we, the night that we were freed. Oh, right. Before we left. Before we left. Yes. Before we left. Could you imagine what they were talking about? <sighs> you know, when the P.S. Essner teaches this, and he's very descriptive in some of his examples of what he meant, to really, really imagine, maybe this year at the Seder table, you'll give five minutes of asking everyone to close their eyes. And just close your eyes, deep breathe, and just imagine what it's like to know any second I'm out of here, I'm able to really do this. And there is one other mitzvah. Actually, when I said there were two mitzvot, a part of me said, no, there's really three. And it's the marah. We also say when we eat the marah, the bitter herb, ashikidashanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu al-achilat marah. So when we get to Mara, I'll, I'll teach about the Rav's insight to that, Rav Cook's insight to that. So the Sipur Yitziat Mitzrayim, the eating the Matzah and the eating the Mara, that's basically the mitzvot of the, of the night. So yes, imagine what it's like and then move that, shift that to your own journey. So we begin one of the te- one of the very first phrases in the first paragraph after the Arbaha Kushiot, the four questions. We recount that when we were redeemed, and it's a pasuk from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy twenty six eight, Chaf Vav Chet. How were we redeemed? Biyad Chazaka Uvazora Nutuya. Yad Chazaka is a strong hand. Yad is hand. Chazak, that's strong. 
So we were both redeemed with a strong hand, but also an outstretched arm. Zorah, Zorah is a, one of the definitions of Zorah is an arm. And Nutiyah means to be outstretched. So here's what Rav Cook teaches us about the difference. Why would the Pasuk have to say we were redeemed by a strong hand and an outstretched arm? It could only be because they're different. If they're the same, usually in biblical perushim, biblical commentaries, there are a few axioms that the commentators base their commentaries on. One of them is not only every phrase, but every word, and not only every word, but every letter is important. So if something appears redundant, it begs the question, why is it there? Because it's based on the axiom that it really isn't redundant. Otherwise, it wouldn't be said. So think about it for a minute. What is the difference between a strong hand and an outstretched arm? If you wanted to be freed, if you needed help, if you needed help, and someone, a human being, came to help you, what would you want? Would you want a strong hand, or would you want an outstretched arm? Well, I would want the hand to reach out to help me, but I'd also want it to be strong, so it could help me. I wouldn't want a weak hand to reach out to me. Right, because you're you're (laughs) feeling weak. You're feeling unable. Right. Right? So you need something that's able, that you can depend on, that you can lean on, that you can rely on, that, you know, is really going to be there. Right. 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 So you really need both. You really need both. That's why the Pasuk says both. So, But what? Are, how are they different? So this is the teaching from Rav Cook, And, of course, many, many other rabbis offer many all different types of interpretations. This is Rav Cook's interpretation. A strong hand, a yad chazaka, that refers to the sudden, dramatic intervention of God in our history, which immediately catapulted us from the depths of depravity in Egypt to the spiritual heights of Mount Sinai. I mean, could you imagine, after 210 years, you sat down to eat this meal, with your loins girded, ready to leave, think about what it would have felt like. And seven weeks later, seven I mean, the way time flies, my gosh, this is already, I'm waking up Tuesday morning in Israel, it's March 1st. I mean, seven weeks, I was just in another part of the world. <laughs> like all of January and February just have flown. Could you imagine after 210 years, you're sitting at this meal at midnight and your oppressors firstborn are dying and then they beg you to leave and like you leave, it's it's traumatic. It's mamash, it's traumatizing. And then seven weeks later, you're at Mount Sinai, which is probably the most cataclysmic, spiritually wondrous moment in all of Jewish history. Like, how did I get here? 
with a strong hand. That's how. It's sudden. But the Rav says this is only one aspect of divine history. In addition to the revolution, it's mamash revolutionary, of the strong hand, there must also be the evolution symbolized by the outstretched arm. The arm is outstretched, meaning that the potential yet awaits its actualization. See, the strong hand just grabs you, like you're a drowning victim, God forbid, and the strong hand of the lifeguard just grabs you. But the other way of saving a victim is to outstretch the arm. And then the drowning victim can reach towards it. Depends on the situation. So grabbing someone with that strong hand is from a force bigger. It's revolutionary. It's sudden. The outstretched arm, sharing my personal journey, that's how I felt. I felt that one day when I made that big decision, I felt God was extending his, her arm and saying, Yiska, I invite you to hold on. Grab. It's a strong hand. Yes, the fact that it happened in one day was momentous. It was, uh, wow, it was a revolution. But the process was, hold on. Just hold on. La'at, la'at. Little by little, you will move forward. So it's both revolutionary and evolutionary. It's a beautiful, beautiful flow back and forth. The arm is outstretched, meaning that the potential yet awaits its actualization. And here the Rav adds, almost as a side note, but it could be very, very telling, that there may be an etymological link. If you look in the Hebrew, in the verse, where you see the verse, the first word is biyad, and then chazaka, and then uvzoroah, you see the word uvzoroah? In the word zoroah is also the letters that mean seed, zera, like when you plant zeraim, when you plant seeds in the ground. So perhaps there is an etymological link of the arm, although in English an arm and a seed don't seem to have much in common, but how he's explaining what that means as the potential for. That's what the seed is. The seed is a potential growth for a plant. All of it's in the seed. So this outstretched arm alludes to the slow, gradual, spiritual evolution of the Jewish people to an ongoing process that will eventually climax in the coming of, the revealing of, the long-awaited Mashiach. We're part of that process right now. We're part of the outstretched arm. These are two tracks of history. One, a revolution engineered from above. Left to our own resources, most people understand logically that if it were up to us that night, we would have never left Egypt. 
supernatural divine intervention was required. Hence, you had the ten plagues, you had all the drama, you had all the bending of the laws of nature. And it didn't stop there. It, we, we saw more, more of it, the splitting of the sea, the waters of the well of Miriam, the man coming from heaven. Our whole experience was from outside of us. And it was indeed revolutionary. It's called in Aramaic, based in Kabbalistic language, Itaruta de la It's an arousal from above. So it's a source of inspiration from outside of one because of where one, because of time and place. And I use big quotation marks. One happens to be, one happens to be, coincidentally, Someone just said that to me the other day. By coincidence, and then, of course, what he then proceeded to tell me was anything but coincidental, (laughs) but it could look that way, a person is in a time and place, and something happens outside of the person, and it it profoundly changes the person's life. It has a lifetime, it leaves a lifetime impression. But for that to be sustained, for that to really lead to something that's going to create and nurture a change within, something has to happen within. It may begin from outside of us in a revolutionary way, but something else has to partner with it. And that's what's called itaruta dilatata, an arousal from below. The below means each one of us. So that's why, back to the text, the Rav says, while that is the one track of history, he then says, but the ultimate goal is not that the, not that the Torah go against the grain of nature, we know that for 3,400 years, we have not lived with what we recount happened in Egypt with the ten plagues, happened at the splitting of the sea, the whole 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. That's not, really, that does not make up most of Jewish history. That's not the ultimate goal. Rather, what is the ultimate goal, Chevra? that human nature be refined so that the Torah can be integrated and absorbed within the framework of nature. Not to be outside of nature. Now, we may have to be shaken up. Like, <laughs> oh, I think I get the message now. Okay, that's the, that's the Yad Chazakah. Now, I extend the invitation to hold on and we'll go day by day, moment by moment, within nature. This gradual refinement of our nature is an ongoing process over generations. It did not end at any given time. It did not end when Yeshua ushered in the Bnei Yisrael to Israel 
It did not end with the beginning and the end of the first temple, nor the second temple. It hasn't ended. Now, if you can read into this, a lot of, like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a lot of Rav Cook's teachings, if not all, but I don't want to say all because that's quite dramatic, I'll say most of just about everything I've learned from him is layered, layered with so many different meanings. He also foresaw, although he didn't live to see it, he had the vision of the Hakamat Medinat Yisrael, the establishment of the State of Israel. It was only 13 years after his passing. When people have been waiting 2,000 years, what's 13 years? So it's like he saw already the light of the new day before the sun actually rose. Even that, what happened in 1948, is not the end. We're still in it. We're still in it, historically. This, this, this one sentence of his, when he says, this gradual refinement of our nature is an ongoing process over the generations, it reminds me of when Rabbi Sachs taught that wherever we are in history, we're like a dot. We're like this dot. He didn't mean to minimalize our significance. He just meant there's all these dots before us, and then there's all these dots after us. And we're part of something so much bigger than the moment. So all the dots before us we call history. All the dots after us we call our future. So he says, at the same time, we need to look back and be guardians of our history. But at the same time we're looking back, we need to look ahead and be trustees for our future generations. It's warrior two in yoga. It truly is yoga. It's warrior two. <laughs> you were thinking of that, yes. Be in the moment, but have... Each arm, one extended forward, one extended back. So in the moment, what Rav, what Rav Kirk is saying here with this imagery of the Itaruta de la Tata, with this arousal from within, we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. So for this reason, that's why we say in the Haggadah, we actually say it, it's a, it's a Mishnah in Pesachim, in Mishnah Pesachim, it's the 10th chapter, Perik Yud, Mishnah Hey, the 5th Mishnah. That's where we say, Bechol Dor Vador, in every, each and every generation. Chayav Adam Tatsmo, a person needs to see oneself. Ki'ilu, Ki'ilu, as if, Hu Mitzrayim that he or she, as if he or she actually came out of Egypt. We repeat that, we recite that towards the end of the Magid. After we've told all the stories, historically, our own story, imaging the original story, but towards the end of all this, when we begin the first part of Hallel, the second part we recite after the Birkat HaMazon, this is right before we drink the second coast of wine. 
which directly precedes the, the Rachza, Motzi, Matzah. It's really towards the very end of Magid. That's when we say, Bechol Dor Vadar. You know why? Because it's not only something that happened to someone else 3,400 years ago. It's happening to us right now. Now, maybe not always in the Yad B'Yad Chazakawe. Not everyone experiences in their journey an Itaruta de la Ila. Although, I think if we think hard and really meditate on it, we can recall moments that were really profound, that seemed to have come from nowhere without any warning. <laughs> I see a few heads shaking. Yes. Like, oh my gosh. All right, I just have to share this one moment with you. I'm on a plane, 1971. It's in my book. But this isn't Nitaruta de la Ela because this was as far from my consciousness as ever. I'm on a plane from United States to Europe on this trip that I felt compelled I had to do alone, not knowing why. I was always afraid to be alone. It was contrary to my total MO. And there I am, just about to turn 20 years old. I mean, once you become a parent and you have a 20-year-old, like, oh my gosh, my parents must have been so besides themselves. <laughs> there I am, I have a big bag of all this literature from all different government tourist agencies, from Greece, from Italy, from France, from all over. And I'm thinking I have the whole plane ride to sift through all of it and just dream and just, just whoa, I can go to Greece. I, can, I knew I wanted to be more Mediterranean because I like beaches. I like the water and I like warm weather. So I, oh, I could go beach hopping. I can go to museums. I can meet people here. I can meet people there. And I remember, I remember like it was a second ago. We're talking, it's 40, my gosh, it's 45 years ago. I remember taking the bag and for some reason, I don't have any explanation other than Itaruta de Leila, which is probably it. I stand up, I take the bag, I walk to the back of the plane, I throw it out in the garbage. <laughs> I've collected this over two, three months before the, before the summer break began. Just It was my fantasy, like, oh, I could go here, I could go there, and I'll look through it all on this plane ride over to Europe. And I felt compelled to throw it all out because I knew where I had to go from Europe. It wasn't to Greece. It wasn't to Italy. It wasn't to France. It wasn't to Spain or Portugal. It was to Israel. That was the first moment I never had considered coming to Israel at all. <laughs> That's a Yad Chazaka. <laughs> and then I got off the plane, deplaned, and as soon as I could, I booked the next flight on El Al to Tel Aviv. And two days later... There I am, here Here I am in Israel, and the love affair began. So from then, from once I touched ground till now, it's been, it's been the Zorah Nutiyah. It's been the outstretched arm, but it started with the Yad Chazakah. I have no explanation for why I felt compelled inwardly to stand up, take the bag, go to the back of the plane, and throw it all out, which is what I did. So yes, so we are we are 
asked. We're asked to remember our own coming out of our own Egypt as if it's really happening right now to each one of us. The, you know, I understand the, the strong hand. There is this kind of, I don't know, as you described it, and I've experienced it as a well, almost like this uh, eureka moment. You know, this moment where it's just like suddenly you've been, you've moved into a different universe, a, a, a kind of consciousness. Yes. Yes. You've moved into yeah. a different consciousness. I'm really intrigued with the outstretched arm piece because that is where mm, somehow it takes your own individual uh, power, right? Your own individual energy, like what you call the arousal from within. And I can't repeat that. Aramaic or whatever it is phrase that you said. So uh, I don't even know what my question is other than what is that? And how do you, how do you, how do you um, garnish it? What's the word? Like, how do you cultivate it? How do you, how, what, what is it that we're growing? What it, what it, what we're growing, and it's a marvelous, marvelous question, because it's essential to our successful spiritual journeys. And when I say successful, I must emphasize, I'm not talking about the end point. The successful journey in terms of the end point, however we understand the coming of the Mashiach, that's the end point. That's what Rav Cook says. All this leads to, eventually, this ongoing process will climax with this long-awaited major event that we always have way in front of... We have it in front of us, but it's not in the moment at any given time. To nurture this, to garnish this, to really keep it going, first of all, we need to look at it, to quote his words, as it's been translated, it's an ongoing process rather than a sudden event. That's why the sudden event comes from outside, and what comes from the inside is an ongoing process. So it's really mindful living that right now, in this moment, am I nurturing my own... Fr- to put it in the context of this, within the Yitziat within Mitzrayim, am I focused on becoming more free? Am I focused on becoming more true and genuine to the Yiska that God created Yiska to be? Every time I compromise that and chip away at it, I'm going back, I'm 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 going back into Mitzrayim. So the outstretched arm is like the lifeguard who stretches out his or her arm and the drowning victim lunges after it. And then as that drowning victim is lunging after it, the lifeguard steps back. And eventually, I remember learning, this was when I took a water a lifeguard water safety class, this is probably the safest way to save a drowning victim, because if they have enough strength 
out of the need to survive to push down a strong lifeguard because of their adrenaline is in high fifth gear, 10th gear survival mode, they could actually save themselves in many cases. So the first go-to method of saving someone is to stretch out your arm and never let the drowning victim touch it. As, as he or she moves closer to you, you move back. And in essence, that's what God is doing. He, she is stretching out the arm and inviting each one of us to keep going and going and going. When will we touch, to use the metaphor, when Mashiach comes? But meanwhile, the going is our journey. And like you so well put, it comes from within. It doesn't come from outside. So the way to nurture it, and in other words, the way to, to nurture it, to feed it, to give it drink, to make it alive, is first of all, to be aware that this is what you're doing. This is mindful living, that when you wake up every morning, and for those who say, moda'ani, and for those who don't, just give yourselves a few seconds, even a few seconds. What did I wake up for? Did I wake up to move to the next step, or did I wake up to move backwards? God forbid. And of course, I say God forbid, but in any real journey, we do have those moments, two steps forward, one step back, as long as we learn from it to then go forward. The outstretched arm is always there. That's the end goal. But what Rav Cook, again, in other words, is really talking to is the means. Is the means. What kind of significance do you give to your own means in your journey to wherever your ends are? To further answer, while the arousal from above or the Yad Chazakah can occur when we least expect it, because we're not expecting it, because we can't expect it by its very definition, the gradual, the, the evolution rather than the revolution can only occur with mindful, intentional living. And I would say, other than the obvious of outer, inner, above, below, however one, revolution, evolution, that that right there, experientially, probably, at least in my experience, really distinguishes the two. I mean, did I know, I had no intention when I felt I had to just throw all these papers out, these travel guides, because now... Like that, oh, I'm going to Israel, which never even had occurred to me that whole year in college when I was planning this trip. That was not even an option that I declined. However, once I got to Israel, I then needed to be mindful for me to really experience for what I believe was the reason God brought me here. (laughs) So yes, mindfulness is part of the evolutionary process in the journey. Hence the word, kavanah. 
Kavana. So does that help uh, provide an answer to your very important question? Yeah, yeah I mean, um, it does. Uh, and what's unsatisfying there is that, um, you know, I, I guess I want a little, I, I want a little more of a prescription, but there mm. isn't a prescription to be had. That's that's <laughs> part of the answer. Yes. See, this is exactly that's so. Oh, there is no <laughs> prescription that can be had because if there was, then we'll go back to the end of Yachatz. There'd be no imaginative spirit. Then, if there was no imaginative spirit, there would be no meaning for us to have in our history that we came from idolaters. I mean, the whole. Do you, I mean, Rav Cook. He was teaching something profound that regardless of where you are in your own journey, it all has meaning. It all has meaning. If there was one prescribed way to do this, that would diminish, that would take away all those moments that have meaning. And then we'd be robotic Jews without thinking. We trade in free will for a portion of the world to come. Okay, God, you know what? You take my free will. I'll do all the mitzvot just so I get that chilek. I get that portion in the world to come. I'm only going to focus on the end. Much harder. (laughs) (laughs) But there's so much more to celebrate. There's so much more to celebrate. Yes, there's so much more to celebrate. So, in conclusion, regarding one's individual experience, we observe that there are moments of sudden enlightenment, he says. These are the rare times when one experiences the strong hand. But most of the time, one must move along gradually, working the field of Judaism performing the various commandments, though one does not even grasp their depth. The commandments are all connected in some way to the exodus from Egypt. This is the outstretched arm. Think about that. This, is, this yet gives, once again, another definition to mitzvot. What are mitzvot? There are 613 channels to which we can move along and get closer and closer to this Nutiya, this Zorah Nutiya. That's how he understands the mitzvot. Do we understand fully, really, what any mitzvah is? No more than we understand fully what we experience in the course of a day. Really, we would be in an existential crisis our whole lives if we focused on one moment that we did not understand. (laughs) I mean, if that so traumatized any one of us, we wouldn't be able to function. It would incapacitate us. So knowing that, we don't have to have a full, the deepest possible understanding of any mitzvah. We can just look at it as another outstretched arm, inviting us to gradually, in an evolutionary way, 
move along this attaining freedom. That's the key message. You know, the introduction to the series, which was the introduction to his commentary on the Haggadah, really provides the the Rosh. It's really the head. It's the energy. It's the consciousness of the, how Rav Cook understands the whole Haggadah Shal Pesach. We're, we're moving towards freedom. It's all about freedom. Freedom to be who we were meant to be. Is it hard? Yes. Do we struggle? Do we put up fights at times? Do we complain? Yes. Every time we read a verse, you know, I'm, I wish when I'm in different classes that all of us would be a little bit more gentle and a little bit more compassionate when, rather than be quick to judge the Bnei Yisrael for how they behaved at times. How do we behave along our journey? When something is just not so, we're quick. <laughs> we're quick to judge. We're quick to complain. We're quick to question. That's part of human nature. These were real people who were in a real journey, and they are the prototype for us in our journey. And that shows that it's an evolution. It's not a revolution. Yeah, the take going out of Egypt and the seven weeks to get to Har Sinai, that was like, hmm, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Eight weeks ago, I was enslaved. Seven weeks ago, I'm sitting down to this supper of freedom. And now I'm at Har Sinai. But then began the journey from within. So was it hard? Yes. Could you imagine that generation who did make it into Israel? What they must have felt like when they crossed the Jordan River with Joshua? Wow. This is what their parents dreamt for and never were able to experience. Moses was not able to experience it. Again, going back to the P.S. Etzner, image yourselves in that moment. So the degree, in closing, the degree to which we take that revolutionary moment that occurs outside of us, that beginning of redemption, biyad chazakah, to the degree we integrate it into la'at, 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 something inside of me shifts. It's a parad, to quote Reb Zalman, it's a paradigm shift. And now the work really begins, the inner work. This is the becoming free. This is the story, our own stories, that we have to share of, not that I came out of Egypt, but that I am coming out of Egypt. Right now as I'm speaking, I'm coming out of Mitzrayim. It's nothing that's in my past, it's in my present and every past moment is part of it. Thank you so much. I bless all of you. I bless all of you that you be aware of the Yad, Chazakah, in your lives. And then you take it to the next step. The Zoran Natuyah. Thank you for downloading this podcast. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.